Hi friends and welcome to another episode of Attire Grad Student Study Psychology. My name is Nick and I am a second year grad student studying clinical counseling and psychology. And I have a big test coming up at the end of the summer and I need your help. I'm using this podcast as a way to study for this test, going through the thought and the theory of psychology systematically over time. And I hope that you join me in this because I love psychology, I love the theory, I love the thought, and I also love counseling too. So join with me as I study for this test. I'm very nervous, but I think it's going to be a great time. Today we're going to talk about Freud. The question I get asked most when I tell people I'm in this field is, you know, what is up with this guy Freud? (laughs) You know, uh, he's kind of crazy, you know. He is uh, definitely an interesting guy, and we're going to talk about really the... uh, the crazy, um, the good, and really everything in between. In 1999, Time Magazine said that Freud was one of the most influential thinkers of the last century, while other articles uh, around this time period said he's history's most debunked doctor. You know, and uh, we're, that's that's pretty true. You know, he, no matter what you think about him, he has such a profound influence on not only psychology, but today's culture, you know, the use of Freudian slips, defense mechanisms, transference, counter-transference, and he also had some really bad ideas, you know, psychosexual stages, his view on women, uh, we'll talk about that later, but, you know, uh, whether you like him or hate him, you know, you cannot deny his impact on today. Now, before we start talking about Freud in depth, we have to define a couple things. And first is personality. Freud had a lot of ideas on how we develop our personality and what went into that. And what is personality? You know, that's a really hard thing to define. Um, But, you know, personality is really, you can boil it down to this, the longstanding patterns that uh, determine how we think, feel, and behave in a certain way. You know, personality is really set up by two things. Uh, it's really set up by nature and nurture, um, your environment and uh, your genes. So we classify personality in what, what are called traits. And what really personality is, is, you know, these traits that are Uh, the word is enduring, you know, your personality is pretty stable over time. And you may say, uh, no, Nick, (laughs) my personality has changed. But, you know, your specific traits have been pretty persistent. And it could have changed. And I'm not going to say that you're you have the same personality. But what I will say is that these traits that you have uh, really been there for a long time and have been um, nurtured in a way to um, express themselves in certain ways. Freud was born on May 6, 1856, to uh, Ashkenazi Jewish parents uh, Jacob and Emilia Freud. You know, and as a boy, he loved literature, and he was really fluent in a lot of languages like German, French, Italian, Spanish, English, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Freud later went to college at the University of Vienna at age 17, where he studied multiple areas like philosophy, physiology, and zoology, Uh, as part of his MD, and he graduated with his MD specializing in neurology in March 1881. After college, Freud worked in the Vienna General Hospital, where he did a lot of research on cerebral anatomy and looked at the comfort care of cocaine and worked on research on aphasia. 
You know, he believed smoking enhanced his capacity to work and that he could exercise self-control, suggesting that addictions were just substituted for masturbation. After that, he opened up his private practice specializing in quote-unquote nervous disorders, and uh, he was a devout atheist, but he married Martha Bernays, the granddaughter of Isaac Bernays, a chief rabbi in Hamburg, and they ha later had six children together. Freud had a lot of influences with his psychoanalytic theory. His first is he remembered his philosophical tutor, Franz Bernanto, and his uh, thought of what we would call the unconscious mind from his 1874 book, Psychology from an Empirical Standpoint. You know, Franz never really said that there was an unconscious, but from his book, we can conclude that that's where he was leading to. Another philosophical leader that influenced him was Nietzsche. You know, Freud read a lot of his work and it's an interesting relationship actually that Freud had with Nietzsche because he denied ever being influenced by him, but he bought all his books and he refused to read them because he was so worried about how much influence that would have on him. And other notable people that influenced Freud were Charles Darwin um, with his evolutionary science, Theodore Lips on his work on the unconscious and empathy, William Shakespeare because Freud just really loved reading and he suggested, Freud actually suggested that uh, William Shakespeare understood human psychology because of his plays. And then we have Jean-Martin Charcot, I, it's French, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he was a uh, renowned psychologist, uh, specifically a neurologist, who was conducting scientific research in hypnosis. And Freud spent three months in a fellowship with Charcot uh, as he was studying hysteria. And he would, Charcot would um, use hypnosis to really treat people with hysteria on stage in front of everyone. So Freud was amazed by this. This all led to the final influence, which was Joseph Breuer. You know, he was a friend and collaborator to Freud. And he actually helped Freud use hypnosis, you know, much different from the French methods that use suggestion. He, they, they didn't think that that was uh, appropriate, but he brought Freud actually his first patient. It was actually Brewer's patient, but Freud had a major impact on this, and this was Anna O. We can't really talk about Freud without talking about Anna O. Anna O suffered from hysteria, which was an emotionally charged behavior that seems excessive and out of control, and it was most commonly diagnosed for Victorian women. Uh, you know, it was actually in the DSM until 1980, I believe, and it has the characteristics of emotional outbursts, hallucinations, and loss of a sensation. You know, and some people even seemed like they were in a trance while others experienced paralysis. It was a very serious disease. Doctors Freud and Brewer found that her symptoms may be the cause of repressed memories of a traumatic experience hidden from her conscious mind. She was encouraged to talk about her symptoms while under hypnosis, uh, and she called this the talking cure. While they were talking about her symptoms, they suddenly became reduced, and she retrieved memories of a traumatic incident that was associated with the onset of her symptoms. 
You know, after multiple inconsistencies with hypnosis, he dropped it from his treatment plan. Uh, there's no surprise there. And uh, he, he suggested that patients actually talk freely about what they're thinking uh, without censorship. And he has to locate the memories associated with this talk, um, with what they were, you know, talking about. And he actually labeled this free association, which was really key and something that's never been done before in psychology. Freud found that patients' dreams could also be fully analyzed to reveal the structure of the unconscious. Now remember, he was very influenced by everyone who was starting to think of this unconscious mind. And he really just dove into that. And this is the start of the psychoanalytic thought. He later used his theories on his own dreams and memories of his own childhood. And uh, he was experiencing heart irregularities, disturbing dreams, and even periods of depression. You know, he was uh, describing this as a quote-unquote self-analysis, where he explored his feelings of hostility to his father, even jealousy over his mother's affection, which led him to revise his theory of the origin of pathology, which is basically like bad mental health. Freud said the interpretation of dreams is the royal road to a knowledge of the unconscious activities of the mind. And he also said dreams are a painful content that are to be analyzed as the fulfillment of wishes. Really this idea of to understand this unconscious mind, which is again a very new concept, you have to really analyze the sort of subconscious, that below the conscious uh, area. And the only way to do that was through dreams and later on, you know, introspection and uh, free talk or free association. And by 1869, Freud was using the term psychoanalysis to refer to his new clinical methods. So how is psychoanalytic thought used in therapy? Uh, so what is it? And the goal is to bring out unconscious thoughts and feelings into consciousness to lead the patient's healing. So this is done by a number of things that what we talked about before, which was free association, you know, talking without censorship, uh, talk therapy, which was this new idea, this radical new idea, just talk during therapy. Uh, and introspection, which is uh, to think about your own thoughts, think about what you're thinking about. Freud said, quote, the doctor should be opaque to his patients and like a mirror should show them nothing but what is shown to him. So again, uh, the unconscious mind has kind of a mind of its own and it's the therapist's job to sort of be a mirror, to be a blank slate, to catch what the patient is throwing at you per se, you know, and uh, really interpreting that for the patient. You know, before we move forward, I think it's important to talk about the unconscious. Uh, I think I've been throwing this term out a lot without defining it. And the definition is, you know, it's simply a deposit of uh, memories, thoughts, and emotions that are outside of the conscious mind. So speaking of the unconscious, you know, how is it structured? You know, what does it look like? And I'm sure so many of you have heard of these terms, so I'm not going to spend too much time on them, but they're very interesting. Uh, Freud came up with the three structures uh, called the id, the ego, and the superego. Freud described it like this. 
The mind is like an iceberg. It floats one-seventh of its bulk above water. And he also said the ego represents what we call reason and sanity in contrast to the id, which contains the passions. So think of consciousness like an iceberg. You know, let's just say the one that sank the Titanic, for instance. And the consciousness is, like Freud said, mostly below the water. So let's say uh, we're thinking about the unconscious. That's the part that really tore into the Titanic. You know, you cannot see that. So yeah, that, that's the unconscious. And that comprises the super e part of the superego and the id. Then there's the pre-conscious. No, so that's right on like right on the the water you know it's a little bit above the water a little bit below the water and the pre-conscious is easily retrievable memory that is still not in the consciousness that's probably the best way i can explain that consciousness is the stuff that we can see you know iceberg dead ahead that's the the part you can see and that really comprises a part of the super ego and the ego so the it is unconscious like we said before and it's fueled by what Freud called the pleasure principle. You know, so think of, a, let's say, an animalistic uh, brain. You know, it, it is only there for eat, sleep, sex, and protection. And according to Freud, this was the biggest part of personality and the most, you know, state, not stable one, but the, the one that's been there the longest. You know, we're all born with the id, uh, Freud would claim. And in contrast to the id, we have the ego, which is a part of consciousness. You know, this is fueled by the reality principle, and it has the ability to postpone gratification in accordance to the demands of reality. So let's think of an example. So let's say that you're at a party and there is a box of 30 donuts in front of you. Now, the id would say, I need all 30 donuts. I need them right now. I don't care what anyone thinks. But the ego would say, now, that is probably not a good thing to, to do because eating 30 donuts in front of people you don't know is just plain one, gross, and two, not acceptable. Freud really said uh, really the most important thing about the id and the ego that, you know, one might compare the relationship of the ego to the id with that between a rider and his horse. And what did Freud mean? Well, Freud compared the id to a horse and the ego to a horse's rider. And the horse provides power and motivation while the rider provides direction and guidance. And that's probably the best way to really recognize the difference between the id and the ego. And then we have the superego, which is in the pre-conscious. You know, it, it again is a retrievable info that is not conscious. You know, it is the internalization of society's morals and standards and is responsible for guilt. So think about it like this. You have the id, which is like the devil on one shoulder, and the ego, which is like the angel on the other. And then you have superego, which is uh, the judge between. And all three are interacting at the same time. Freud said these needed to be in balance. And we can't just have them fighting all the time. We have to have them in, you know, balance. So he had some really cool ideas, actually, in my opinion, that really relate to psychopathology. So he said, one, uh, the overactive id uh, cannot control its behavior. You know, it's this animalistic sort of thing, you know, this pulse. You know, someone with an overactive id may be impulsive, you know, and we would 
probably classify that as, you know, someone who struggles with substance abuse, someone who is impulsive to their decisions. So if an overactive id cannot control its behavior, then an overactive superego cannot have perfect standards. It has unrealistic standards, and it's uh, a perfectionist. So think about mental health in that way, and we may think of, you know, something like depression and anxiety. Now, when we talk about psychopathology in the eyes of Freud, uh, we have to talk about defense mechanisms. Um, we use defense mechanisms in a way to protect ourselves of any, you know, feelings or anxiety or guilt. Um, and it's if our it or super ego becomes too demanding, you know, and they operate at an unconscious level, and they help ward off these unpleasant feelings that are associated with those things. And we use these a lot, especially in the cases of you know pathology. And they can really uh, be a precursor to, you know, hysteria, phobias, or even obsessions. You know, defense mechanisms are very popular, and we still use kind of all of these things today. And uh, I want you to listen and see if you can recognize any of these. So the first one is regression. You know, and regression is a retreat to an earlier stage of development, you know, and it's usually a response to a stressful situation. Now, think of a child who sucks their thumb when they are in an unpleasant situation. You know, this child may be, you know, four or five or six, and it's not really a uh, societal um, norm to suck your thumb at that time. But if they're in a social situation that is unpleasant, they may revert or regress back to that time when they were really psychologically safe, quote-unquote. Denial is a refusal to accept reality uh, really as it is. You know, and uh, an example of this could be, you know, think of a student who may refuse to recognize that they are wildly unprepared for an exam. Now, um, I probably don't know anyone like this, but I can probably think of a few examples, uh, mostly someone who is using a podcast to really help them study. The next defense mechanism is reaction formation. Now, this is like denial, but it's going way further than that, and it behaves in the really the opposite way of what we think or feel. So think of a, a man who holds a deep hatred for those who hit their children. And let's say that um, he doesn't like what they're doing and thinks it's like a horrible thing but yet in therapy he discloses that he actually hits his children as well now this is a defense mechanism because it is shielding them from the pain that that is causing you know he's saying you know uh i really don't like this but um you know this is just a really bad thing but when when it's you know the mirror is reversed you know when it's shining on him he denies it you know and that's really what reaction formation is Projection is attributing someone's own thoughts that they are unacceptable onto another person. Uh, so what do we mean by that? Well, let's say a woman hates her neighbor and she knows that it is unacceptable to hate her neighbor but justifies it because she thinks her neighbor hates her too. You know, it is putting your thoughts and feelings onto someone else and really just justifying how you think and feel because of that. Rationalization is a sort of like a cognitive distortion of quote-unquote the facts to make an event or a feeling, you know, less threatening. So let's say 
a child discloses that he punched someone um, in his class. And he responds to the therapist or the teacher by saying, you know, well, he asked for it. You know, um, you're really distorting the facts of that situation if you went just right up to the kid and punched him. Now we have uh, what's probably the most famous defense mechanism from Freud is uh, repression. Now this uh, is employed by the ego to, to really keep disturbing thoughts from coming into consciousness. Now remember, you know, sort of pathology comes from when the unconscious bubbles up thoughts and feelings that, uh, may, that the ego may not want. And uh, so in turn, the ego will sit there and push back all these, you know, terrible thoughts, feelings, and memories. And so let's say that we have a soldier who came back from war and was told by his leadership to go to therapy. And uh, the therapist reads that, oh my goodness, you have been in a traumatic experience. Tell me about it. If the soldier is repressing his memories, he would say, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I don't remember this. I don't think I've been in a traumatic experience. I don't remember this experience that you're telling me. And that's really what repression is. It's a way to protect yourself from the harsh reality that you've faced. Uh, Freud said that repressed is only cut off sharply from the ego by resistance of repression, and it can communicate with the ego through the id. Now, he also said that the repressed merges into the id as well as is merely a part of it. So repression really works between the id and the the ego, um, sort of this back and forth between, okay, the id is just going to send these memories up because it's sort of this animalistic protection and all these things. Well, the ego is like, okay, I cannot think about this. We have, you know, other things to worry about, or not other things to worry about, but other things to think about. And displacement is the redirection of an impulse uh, onto a powerless substitute target. Um, so what does that mean? So uh, think of a mother who comes home from a stressful work day and yells at her children. This would be displacement. You're displacing your negative emotions on someone else and mostly onto someone who doesn't really deserve it. Uh, and we see this so many times in society. And it's, again, it's a way of defending yourself against these negative emotions, thoughts, and feelings. Lastly, we have sublimation. You know, like displacement, sublimation is a, a replacement of a negative emotion, but instead of onto a, a target and really replacing your negative emotions, you're really placing your negative emotions into what's socially acceptable. So think about a teenager who is bullied at school. You know, she refuses um, to lash out, but she instead uses her feelings to really write beautiful poems and that would be sublimation you know you're you're turning that pain into something that's meaningful and that's what we call sublimation really the last good thing that uh, you know uh, freud talked about is the idea of transference and countertransference and uh, we actually still talk about this today in grad school i remember um, my counseling class and we talked about transference you know, transference is when a patient expresses their feelings toward the therapist because of an underlying emotion. Um, so an example of this would be, you know, let's say a 
you know, a patient is taken off guard when the therapist suggests that uh, he go apologize to his mother. Um, this is peculiar because that may be a pretty normal thing to do, actually. I, I would suggest that sometimes, but under the surface, he, he may interpret this as anger because the patient's dad used to be extremely angry and demand the child to apologize for their mother every for every little thing that they've done. And this is transference because this uh, this affects the therapeutic relationship in a in a big way. And when I talk about the therapeutic relationship, that is really just the relationship between patient and therapist. And that's a very important relationship because it's built on trust, uh, confidentiality, and just really um, the mutual uh, exception to say, hey, I want to make sure that you are okay. But this is broken sometimes because of transference. So countertransference is kind of the opposite, actually. You know, it's when the therapist expresses feelings toward the patient because of an underlying thought or emotion. And uh, this can be really bad. You know, you don't want a, a therapist who uh, has a lot of countertransference because they're just thinking about their own thoughts and feelings and projecting onto you, the patient. And that's not what the patient deserves. You know, the patient deserves someone who can sit there take everything that the patient is saying or the client and uh, really not react to that. And uh, we talk about that all the time and it really started with Freud. Now we're going to talk about probably the most um, controversial thing that Freud has ever come up with, and it is none other than the psychosexual stages. Now, what are they? You know, the psychosexual stages are just a pattern of uh, stages that sort of map out how uh, personality is developed. And, you know, Freud had a lot of thoughts about these. Uh, it came from his own self-analysis, like we talked about earlier. And, you know, it is, um, let's just say it's not used today. The psychosexual stages are broken up into five stages. We have the oral stage, the anal stage, the phallic stage, the latency stage, and the genital stage. And uh, these... Um, all these uh, stages have a purpose. They have something that we can explain uh, psychopathology later in life. And Freud really broke this up um, between birth to puberty. And Freud really believed that if you are fixated on a stage, meaning you are stuck in one stage, that you're going to have problems later in life. And uh, these could be really dire or they can be kind of normal. So let's start with the oral stage. So this stage is um, you know, birth to 18 months, and it really focuses on uh, the mouth and sucking. So let's say if a baby was anxious, uh, they would probably suck on their pacifier harder. You know, and the, the key theme to this stage is dependency. 
you know, and so if someone was fixated on this stage, you know, they would probably have dependency issues later in life. Now, the annual stage was about 18 months to three and a half years. And uh, you guessed it, this this focuses on the anus. You know, it focuses on potty training and control. Now, uh, the issue for this stage is, okay, do I listen to what mom and dad have to say or not? You know, and the theme of this is role, self-control. You know, if someone was fixated on this stage, uh, they would probably face you know, impulsivity issues and later in life. So uh, like we talked about in the reaction formation, it would probably have a uh, substance abuse um, issues. The phallic stage was three and a half years to six years. And uh, this focuses on the penis. The theme of this stage is morality and sexual identification. Now, Ford would probably say this is the most influential stage that you can be in. Uh, so if you were fixated on this stage, you probably faced morality issues later in life. And there are two things that come out of this stage. We have what probably a lot of people recognize too is the Oedipal Complex. The Oedipus Complex is, you know, having feelings for the parent of the opposite sex um, and you're really competing with uh, the parent of the same sex. Um, and this uh, starts at, uh, again, a really early age. Boys have, boys will have an attraction to mom um, and girls will have an attraction to dad. And that's really called the electric complex, which we'll talk about in a second. Boys who are attracted to their mom have a fear of castration, what Freud called castration anxiety. And they feared that the, the dad would want to cut off their penis if um, they found out that they were attracted to the mother. I have no idea really the intricacies of how Freud came up with this, but I think it really came with uh, one, his um, readings of literature and all that, and two, his self-analysis. We know that Freud was the oldest boy and has been described as his mom's special favorite. You know, he quoted something that's very interesting that went along with the Oedipus complex. You know, he said, quote, I have found that people who know that they are preferred or favored by their mothers give evidence in their lives of a peculiar self-reliance and unshakable optimism, which often bring actual success to the possessors. Carl Jung, a student of Freud's, really separated uh, the Oedipal Complex because Freud really thought of the Oedipal Complex as together, boys and girls, but he sort of separated it and made it its own thing with uh, it being characterized by what's called penis envy, where girls are envious of boys because of their um, lack of penis. But however, uh, this was refuted by another psychoanalyst, Karen Horney, and probably the best comeback in psychological history. Uh, she says, you know what? You think girls are envious of their lack of penis? I, I don't think so. I think boys are envious of their lack of womb because you can't have babies. And uh, that's what I'm gonna think. And I just think that's the best comeback because uh, she later renamed that womb envy and in just in direct defiance of the father of psychoanalysts. Uh, I, I just love that. So we go on to the next stage, which is called latency. 
and uh, this is six years old to puberty, and it's really a, a period of relative calm. Uh, nothing really happens in this period, uh, hence the name. And after that, we have uh, the genital stage. Now, this is post-puberty, which focuses on the genitals. Uh, the theme is maturity and creation and enhancement of life. And uh, if someone was fixated on this stage, they, they may face troubles with balancing work and love later in life. And uh, Freud would argue that this is the end of personality development. Now, this is where I have a critique of Freud because... Uh, th I don't think that's where personality ends. So how would Freud practice his um, practice today? Well, he, again, he really thought that clinical problems were a result of unconscious conflicts. You know, these conflicts between the id, the ego, and the superego. And uh, that, that probably arose many problems that we would see today he would argue that that's the reason that we have mental health today so we're gonna see how this applies to our case study joe now, if you remember joe he is a man who lost his job and is starting to develop an alcohol dependency and uh he he is in therapy because he is just tired of not working and he is not having a good relationship with his wife and he also has some some bad memories with his dad. Freud would have a field day with this because you you guessed it. He he would Freud would probably focus on the relationship with his dad, uh, probably the most. Um, when he explains his childhood, you know maybe Freud would say you know maybe Joe is stuck in one of these psychosexual stages. He's probably fixated on something, and uh, r remember he's he's um, struggling with alcohol. He's struggling with. Uh, that addiction so he would probably be stuck in the oral age because remember that that's where um you know that's where people are fixated with struggles specifically in the mouth uh so what about defense mechanisms let's say joe has a deep hatred for his dad because he was an alcoholic as well who yelled at him daily you know um what defense mechanism is joe using then it's reaction formation because even though he's showing signs of abusing alcohol, he's showing signs of hatred towards others who abuse it. Now comes uh, the good and the bad things. You know, um, let's start with the good things. Uh, one, the first one is he popularized the unconscious. You know, he really brought that into prominence to culture today. You know, I have my own theories about the unconscious where I'm still struggling with, and I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast, but. Uh, if it wasn't for Freud, that we would not be talking about that today. Um, he introduced talk therapy. Uh, he was one of the first to really use this open dialogue to facilitate therapy. I, I don't think this was used. I mean, remember, uh, hypnosis, sort of that sort of thing was being used. But he said, no, forget hypnosis. Let's just talk. Uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Tell me what you're thinking and feeling. Um, that was really revolutionary. You know, he came up with defense mechanisms with his daughter, and uh, that helps us to understand what people are thinking and feeling internally. And he also came up with transference and counter-transference, which we still use today, actually. Again, I, I learn about this still uh, separate from Freud. We, we didn't even talk about Freud in this. We said, okay, don't have counter-transference with your patients. You know, don't think about um, how to treat them. Think about what to say about them. Um, 
and that was that's really a good thing to think about because our uh, clients of mental health deserve the best care and really uh the last thing is you know um as much as we like to criticize ford for this he he did make a good point that the past really does um affect the present and would we say that it is the direct influence probably not i i, I don't think it's like 100 percent the past um because uh, we have things that are happening right now that could cause mental health, but we really do want to thank him for that because he really brought that into our minds as far as, okay, maybe something in our childhood has caused us to really um, really take a step back and, and have um, a bad reaction to that. And now for the bad, you know, um, it's really easy to come up with the bad uh, but I'm just going to narrow it down for uh, to a couple things. You know, the first one is he, he focused way too much on early childhood. Um, you know, do we, do we stop growing after puberty? Uh, of course not. We know we continually grow. And uh, I just, I don't think that we, we just stop at puberty and just um, not grow anymore. Uh, I just don't believe that one bit. You know, he ignored learning. Uh, that goes into the first part. But, you know, um, all behavior can't be uh, just based on unconscious urges. Uh, it's not testable. Um, how are you supposed to test that? You know, we do learn. We we learn by um, experience and by reinforcement. Uh, and we'll talk about that later on. You know, he's focused way too much on um, sex drives. He he really um, focused uh, a lot on the libido which is just not really helpful, um, you know, and also he, you know, he didn't have a lot of data uh, to back up his theories. Um, when we talk about psychology being a science, uh, the, the number one thing we want to look for in um, psychological science is this needs to be replicated. Uh, that's that's part of good science, you know. If you can sit there, come up with a theory, and write up a report on that, publish it, uh, that needs to be able to be replicated. Um, but he really has no testable theory. It's just all about thoughts. And again, um, early psychology did come from uh, philosophy, and I, I do admit to that. But uh, when you claim to have science, though, like Freud did, you have to back that up with data. And he also believed that women were really weak and inferior and, and used male psychology as a basis for all people. And he he even expressed too, ironically, that he had little understanding of women, which is crazy because he treated mostly women in hysteria. And that's really interesting. And I think that's a um, that's really bad on him because he, he claimed to be a, you know, a counselor and you can't really believe this and, and, and try to help people. I, I, I just think that's a really terrible thing to to go on. And finally, he, he couldn't really establish a clear uh, prediction of abnormal behavior. He really just said, okay, the unconscious and its motives and its conflicts are just really causing bad mental health. But that's it like that's that's all we get you know we can't really produce a, a clear definition of abnormal behavior um and and i think that's really bad for him to to think about so there you go uh freud and however many minutes this actually turned out to be uh i had a, actually a really fun time 
researching Freud, talking about Freud. Again, he is uh, he's such a controversial character, but again, you cannot deny his influence that he had in today. Uh, and a lot of psychologists who are in training or, you know, people like me who are just studying mental health, you know, I used to think, okay, why are we studying this guy, you know? And uh, through studying for this episode, I really grew my appreciation for what he contributed, uh, though I still don't believe that psychoanalysis is in its purest form is is good. There's something that we can draw out of it that we can apply today. So, uh, so yeah. I hope you enjoyed that episode of uh, Tired Grad Student Study Psychology. I love talking about theory. I love talking about thought. And this is really a great way for me to study uh, the subject. Tune in weekly as we discuss all things uh, psychology. And you can follow me now on Instagram at Tired Grad Student. There I'll post uh, surveys, some fun little tidbits, and just some fun things. I don't know. It's just there for me to talk to you guys. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything I got right or wrong, uh, please let me know. Please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about it. Again, I really love psychology. I love the just how it applies to our lives today. So in the meantime, take care and study hard.